As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, April 26th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. If you're watching us on YouTube, hopefully you're enjoying the new look of today's show. Looking to do a little more on screen to keep everybody entertained over the course of our shows going forward. Yeah, yeah, we got a closer shot of Eno too. So a more <laughs> in-frame Eno. My head looks gigantic. Uh, things are coming together really nicely here on the YouTube side. So if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, this is a good time to get in on the fun there. And of course, welcome to all of our listeners on the podcast platform where this show originated. So a lot to get to on this show. You know, Padres, Dodgers really looking like the best rivalry in baseball right now. That was another great series over the weekend. The Rockies and Jeff British have parted ways. So we will discuss how difficult it will be to Kel build a contender. <laughs> we'll discuss how difficult it'll be to build a, a contender in Colorado. And uh, we had some great questions come in, including one about pitchers with good stuff in command who don't currently have a rotation spot, which could be a really helpful source of finding some potential sleepers, uh, in-season sleepers, guys that you could pick up in deeper leagues who might end up having a more prominent role later. Lots of player questions sprinkled in throughout the show as well. So, we begin with the aforementioned Padres and Dodgers rivalry, which I think is the best in baseball right now. And the weekend series had everything in it. Tatis's shoulder, to me, is the main story here because any doubts we had after his first week back after that injury from a performance perspective were erased with a five-homer weekend in Los Angeles. Yeah, pretty amazing. And that also amazing that like he changed his swing, right? Like he he's now doing a two-handed follow-through to to help with the shoulder um and didn't blink, you know. I I thought I thought there might be some repercussions. <laughs> I thought maybe uh this wasn't going to be uh the year that we were hoping for out of Tatis, but um you know, the still the asterisk still remains that like he could re-aggravate this. You know, but otherwise, uh, also the gameplay was amazing. It was really fun. It was just, uh, tight, uh, you know, for the celebrate, don't celebrate debate, 
you know, there was uh, there was there was something to come in there with uh, uh, with the one eyed uh, celebration from Tatis and the uh, the sword from Bauer, uh, the the kind of pitching ninja sword that he did. Apparently, Hosmer did it back to him. Um, so you know, they were they were having fun with it. Um, there was a, a little bit of an edge sometimes when people got hit and some chirping. Um, so it did feel like a real life rivalry. It was like a high end rivalry. Nice thing too. They're both really good teams. So it was really good play. I mean, it was just uh, really good all around. It was just people throwing the ball really hard. Command wasn't even that terrible. Uh, and just really good at bats by the batters. Yeah. I mean, and the comeback from the Padres on Sunday night was really impressive as well. Both of these teams have dealt with some early injuries. The Dodgers seem like they've had a lot pile up recently. I mean, Cody Bellinger, of course, is still on the IL. Uh, but I think when you look at these two teams, they're set up to be a great rivalry for a long time. The NL West is a strong division up top. We'll see what happens with those bottom teams in the months ahead, especially the Rockies, who we'll get to in a few minutes. Like They've got a long way to go before they're ever in the conversation. But the Giants are going to be good sooner rather than later too they have a young core on its way to the big leagues so i think we're we're looking at a long long term rivalry here between the padres and the dodgers i think the other question is you know what other candidates do we have for best rivalry in baseball right now sure yankees red Sox always get sort of the the snap reaction as well yeah that's that's an all-time great and more often than not it is a good matchup but there are some other great rivalries. The Brewers and Cubs have seen each other nine times already this season. Brewers pitching has looked great throughout those series. Mm. I think that's part of the reason why the Cubs offense has looked so bad. I don't think it's a complete loss of skills across the board. I think it's having some really tough matchups, especially with the Brewers being so right-handed with the front of that rotation as well. Yeah, I, I want to put the Mets in uh, in one, but it actually, you know, just trying to pick means that maybe that's not obvious. Like Mets Phillies was for a bit, uh, but uh, is the, do the Phillies have the same quality right now? And is there really uh, that history? Mets Braves uh, was pretty intense for a long time um, and should be again this year. So we may, I, I want to put that one forward as one that we may over the course of the season see a little bit differently as the Braves rotation i think and non acuna lineup uh could uh, uh get it together and make that a, a better race right now it seems like everybody in the nl east is like 9 and 11 i don't think that's statistically possible but somehow <laughs> i think that's what's going on uh so once everybody gets past their 9 11 their phase i feel like uh we'll get to uh mets braves as a possibility there yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for that series over the course of the season. The Braves couldn't believe it. I mean, Zach Gallen and Madison Bumgarner were fantastic against them. Bumgarner going seven scoreless, no-hit innings. Call it a no-hitter if you want. I'm not going to fight you if you do. The game was only seven innings long, so he did what he could to throw a no-hitter in that matchup. If you'd have told me he was even going to get through five no-hit innings against the Braves lineup, I would have probably laughed in your face with that, at that prediction. Well, as Velo was up... Uh, I don't know how much to take from it because if you do look at even before that game, Acuna was the only one hitting. I think there was a, a stat that I saw that non-Acuna Braves are hitting 199 as a group. Um, <laughs> anybody who has shares of Albies or 
um, Austin Riley or Ozuna has uh, been brutal. Ozuna, they know that how, how bad it's been um, outside of Acuna. So um, I, I don't, I don't want. I wouldn't push Bumgarner too hard uh, in my rankings or whatever, or based on that no hitter. It's a little bit like Rodon, where it's like, okay, uh, I think you should push a little bit, right? Because it's like the, the stuff is a little bit better. If he's if he's throwing a mile and a half harder, then he's throwing a mile and a half harder. That's meaningful. And Rodon got a slider back and and seems to be back. You know, had good velo. That's meaningful. So uh, they do move a little bit, but like Rodon, I think. I made him sort of back end top 60 and Bumgarner as a result um, might crack the top 120 or something. I mean, how far are you, would you push Bumgarner based on one star like that? I see him as more of a fringy top 100 guy, but that means he's useful with good matchups even in 12-team leagues. He becomes pitch and ditch mm-hmm. to quote our friends from the old Fantasy 411 show. I mean, I think a home matchup against the Rockies this week that was probably enough for me to think about Bumgarner at least in 15-team leagues, even before what he did on Sunday. And I think that little nudge you might have needed to throw him out there in a 12, that's probably what you got with that start against the Braves. The velo being up does make him more interesting. And I said this on the Fantasy Baseball in 15 show for Monday morning. There's a long way to go between ace and unusable starting pitcher in fantasy. And where in that large middle Madison Bumgarner ends up, I'm sure is a, still a matter of some debate. But if he's 2019 John Lester in terms of ratios and workload, that plays in a decent number of leagues as long as you spot him correctly. Obviously, you're never going to use him against the Dodgers. You probably don't want to use him against the Padres. So there's two teams in division that you have to avoid. But you can use him against his old club. You can use him at home against Colorado. And you can use him in a decent number of matchups around the NL you know, at home and maybe even a few spots on the road. So there's probably 50 to 60% usage for him just given the volume of innings he's going to provide. Yeah. Strange, though. He's never was a huge strikeout guy, even when he was going well. So uh, I wonder if just Park is maybe the biggest uh, variable for me, almost beyond uh, strength of op- of uh, opponent. I mean, he just he, he, he mowed down a lot of great opponents in San Francisco. So, you know, if, if he's pitching in San Francisco, I'm into it. I think home, you know, Arizona is now mostly a pitcher's park. So I think I'd be a guy who, who pitched him in sort of like 80% of his home starts and his San Francisco starts, and that might be it for me. But um, another interesting note out of that uh, was that Zach Gallen uh, did the dominating, and tonight uh, Julio Urias and Tyler Molly are going. And between those three, I don't think I could put a healthier stamp of approval uh, on uh, young pitchers in the game, I think. I think those three are my favorite uh, sort of emerging young pitchers. Uh, I don't know if you can get any three of them in Dynasty League still. Um, and also, I don't, I'm don't. i not a big proponent of trading for pitching as a building block um, in Dynasty Leagues. I'm mostly about get your bats together. But if your bats are starting to get together and it's time to like try and have a keeper pitcher... Those three are the ones. I think Urias may be third just because of the, the labrum surgery that he once had. Um, you know, the other two don't really have a surgery like that on their on their docket. But if you want a building block pitcher, I feel like those three are the place to go. Just just outstanding stuff and command numbers. Um, just really nice broad arsenals now with command 
good velocity. I mean, there's nothing, there's no uh, sort of asterisk with those three guys. Yeah, uh, they've all looked really good so far. And I think Urias in particular, we've been waiting for this for a long time, and it really seems like all of the pieces are falling into place for him now here in 2021. Uh, circling back to the Padres for just a moment, I wanted to ask you about Ryan Weathers because he was somebody I chased in free agency this weekend. I think even with some relative good news on Denelson Lamette at the end of last week, I'm still skeptical about his long-term health. And we talked about it when the Padres put this rotation together. There's a lot of injury risk up and down that group of starters. So what looks like a temporary opportunity for Ryan Weathers to start right now could become more of a long-term opportunity somewhat easily. Now, we've got the, the numbers scrolling by if you're watching on YouTube. What have you seen from Ryan Weathers to this point, and how sustainable is the encouraging start that he's had? Not the you know ERA below one, but just the fact that he's missing a lot of bats with a K rate close to 30% early on here this season. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think uh, just looks better to our eyes than it plays, that the research suggests uh, movement plays. And, and this is something that I've been trying to talk about with Jesus Lizardo a little bit. Where you watch and you say, oh, dude is throwing 95 from the left. Um, you know, he's got an 85 mile an hour breaking ball. Uh, it looks like a good changeup. Like, you know, this is all, this all looks really good. It adds up to around an average stuff number because the breaking ball doesn't have the right movement shape, you know, and the fastball is not really like a riding four seam. So everything is a little bit worse than you expect. That's what I suspect is the case with Weathers, because if you look at these uh, stuff and command numbers that are there's that are scrolling by, you'll see a 65 stuff plus on his fastball, um, a, a slider that looks legit. I think it's 99 stuff plus, but also 107 command plus. We found uh, some uh, evidence also. Ah, this is fun. Uh, Max Bay, who I'm working with. So I, I did that little piece that suggested that maybe uh, command is more important than stuff for sliders. And uh, Max uh, did like an overlay where he did stuff plus versus command plus for sliders and location plus. Um, and it did look like uh, command was more important than stuff for sliders. So uh, sliders are the new fastballs. Uh, so you could say if you're being charitable, weathers, you could say, OK, he's got a big league slider. Um, that he can command. So he, that's a good thing for him. However, change up 56 stuff plus 94 command plus, which means that um, I think the fastball is going to start to get beat. And if you don't believe the sort of, I, I, I understand stuff is a little bit black boxy. Um, you can, you can also just see it on a stat cast page. If you go down to uh, the vertical movement by pitch type table for Ryan Weathers, uh, his sinker, it's called a sinker there. Uh, or four seam, whichever one uh, gets uh, it's anywhere from two to six inches less movement than average. The changeup gets six inches less movement than average uh, vertically, and the slider gets three inches less uh, movement than average. Uh, so his pitches just don't uh, drop a lot, and they don't ride a lot, which is ideal. And I, and I think, honestly, that can be sometimes when you're watching, like it's hard to see, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's super easy. You can see it with breaking balls a little bit, but as we said, in this case, his, his breaking ball is all right. It's the fastball that seems to be the problem. Now, having worked a lot of the bullpen prior to the two starts that he's made, the first start being a short start, we've only seen him throw 10 change-ups so far. So 
does that 56 stuff plus number carry a little less weight for you, given how infrequently we've seen that pitch so far? I mean, there's a chicken and egg thing here. We probably would have seen it more if it were a pitch he was more comfortable with or if it were an obviously better pitch. But can we look at the 10 pitches and say, okay, well, it looks bad so far, but it might not be this bad going forward? I mean, this is absolutely what stuff was created for, stuff plus and, and command plus, is to be able to react faster. So if you do look at the movement on pitches, they're very stable. I mean, these are major league pitchers. They're, they're, they can replicate these, the, the action on these pitches. And so um, I would say that he doesn't have a good changeup. I think it's probably pretty lock solid between what you're saying and like, he doesn't use it, <laughs> uh, but he'd been relieving. So it could be his third pitch, but uh, then we see the movement and we say, eh, that doesn't look like a very good pitch. So kind of a fastball slider guy, uh, more velo out of the pen. What happens if he loses some of that velo, you know, into these starts trying to go deeper into the game? Uh, does uh, that 65 stuff plus on the fastball start to rear its head? I think that sometimes, and this was one of the things that came out of the stuff research, was just that uh, I think that yes, velo is important, and uh, it is a it's a, it's a highly it's a well regarded number within stuff, right? It's and we we look at it and we know that velo is a big deal. However, I think that there's a not there's like a bit there's a bit of velo that's like gets you in the door, you know, gets you into the major leagues. Like, I could have the bendiest pitches in the world, and if I topped out at 75, I, like, I just couldn't be a major leaguer. But what if once you get to the major leagues and everyone's somewhere between 91 and 99, maybe in that range, movement is more important? Because that's what we found, is that when we when we looked at stuff, movement was more important uh, than velo. And I think that's just probably because everyone's already at, if everyone's already around 93, 94, then the rig separator is actually going to be movement. It's a really good point. And I, I think with Weathers, he's the kind of player that if you were thinking about a keeper league or a dynasty league especially, you might have someone who wants to trade for young pitching reaching out to you right now. This could be a window, a relative peak in value. Just because the changeup's not good now or he doesn't have a third pitch he uses now doesn't mean he'll always be a two-pitch guy. I mean, we're talking about someone who skipped over double A AA and triple A. So there's still some development to be done, but I think you're you're right to point out the likely possibility of some growing pains with that current approach, and I think that's exactly what the stuff and command numbers are are pointing out to us right now. So really glad you got that insight. A little nervous about having him in a league like Tout Wars, where he has to be in my lineup for this week. So fingers crossed the correction doesn't happen right away. Hopefully it's when I've got a little more control over the matchups if it's going to happen at all. Uh, the big news of the day on Monday, Jeff Bridich and the Rockies have parted ways, which seems like it was a long time coming, Eno, and this is going to be an uphill battle for whoever the Rockies decide is going to lead their baseball operations group going forward. It sounds like the interim GM is going to come from within, but a search for the next GM is not far away from happening. They still have Trevor Story to possibly trade away midseason, so that's hanging in the balance too. Obviously, the Arenado trade is one that looks awful for the Rockies at this point. We talked about the unique challenges of building a winning team in Colorado, I think is one of our very first episodes of Rates and Barrels, so April two years ago. And I'm sure a lot of the things we touched on way back then are things that are still absolutely true now. When you see the reaction 
to British's departure, you get a lot of, of the same sort of ideas that the Rockies need to become a team that is at the forefront of science and data and tech. They need to try different things. They need to be a laboratory as an organization. And to do that, it's not only going to take Dick Monfort and the ownership group hiring the right people, but it's also going to take a lot of time for the right people to also get everything in place to even make it possible. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that it, it is what it takes. It takes uh, a new buy-in and someone uh, who speaks the language of the owner and says, you know what, uh, you, need, you need to take a step back or just like, I don't know how you convince the owner, but you, you convince the owner that something new needs to go happen. And then you get in there and you say, you, I have total buy-in and we're starting this at the bottom and you have to give me like five years, you know, and I'm going to do some weird stuff in the minor leagues. And that's going to start bubbling up and we're going to look like more like the race, like, and not like the race. I love how they were like, Oh, we're like the race. We're, you know, selling Arenado and buying CJ Crone. It's like, you know, we're buying and selling just like the race did, you know? Uh, no, I mean more like the race as in like innovating the sport being like, Oh, we, we looked at it and we decided that tandem starting is the way to go. So we're actually going to have like only four starters, but we're going to have eight starters and we're, you know, like they're going to tandem with each other, piggyback or whatever you want to call it or whatever it is. You know, we're going to, we're going to look at how to make it work. You know, there are, we, there's a ton of research into what sort of pitch types work better, uh, in cores and, and don't, you know, and you have, uh, you have a minor league, uh, spot in Colorado Springs, I think still, I'm not sure. I hope they, they held on to it because you can do a lot of, uh, like how baseball is doing, moving the mound back in indie leagues and stuff. You can do a lot of experimentation at Colorado Springs where you're getting the same sort of, uh, work, you know, work environment to kind of see if you like, what if we just had a bunch of guys who threw 80% breaking balls? You know, 80% sliders. What if you know, sliders lose less movement than curveballs? What if, what if every one of our guys just really pushes up the slider usage at home? So anyway, um, I did get a text from uh, a friend in baseball. And I, I, I'm going to share it real quick because <laughs> it might be surprising. So my dream job just opened up. <laughs> well... Here's I mean, I think it's like Theo Epstein, man. Like, if you go there and win, that, that you could be a Hall of Fame executive almost based on just that. Well, yeah, and you're going to have your pick of your next job. If you want to move on to a different market, if you decided, yeah, Colorado was nice, but I want to run the Angels someday. I'm not trying to fire Perry Manassian after a few months in the job or anything like that. But if you want to go to a bigger market someday, that would be a stepping stone to choose your own job. I mean... If, if, if Theo wants to get back into running a team, there's the biggest challenge of them all, organizationally speaking, because ever even before Jeff Bridges became the GM of the Rockies, winning in Colorado was very difficult. They have not won a division title, and they have existed for almost 30 years. So that gives you an idea of how tough it is. Part of that's the Dodgers, of course, are a perennial contender. But you know, one thing that was in the the takedown, we'll call it a takedown, from Ken Rosenthal and Nick Groke that went up on the Athletic a couple weeks ago, the Rockies do spend money. Dick Monfort's not Bob Nutting. He's not sitting there saying, we're not spending money. He's willing to spend. The note in the column was their combined payroll ranked 11th in the big leagues from 2017 to 2020, even though they're 21st in market size. So you've got an ownership group that seems to be willing to spend. And it's really just a matter of being really forward thinking and innovative and finding creative ways 
to get something on the field that actually wins consistently. It's going to take something different. I don't think it's impossible, but I do think it's difficult. So I'm really curious to know how many other people around the game you know, feel the way that the person who reached out to you feel, because I don't think that's necessarily as uncommon as we might think looking at the overall failures of the organization since its birth, really. And one of the things that sticks out to me from that uh, that piece by by Ken, Ken and Nick too was uh, a real breakdown in um, communication. I guess is the way to put it. Uh, they just people talking about the it, it, it. In some ways, you could read it as kind of like um, disparaging his uh, personality. Um, and I don't really, I want there to be room for all kinds of personalities in the game. I'm not trying to speak ill on Jeff's personality as a personality, but different personalities fit different roles better. Right. And I like, I think the GM, I think the GM needs, this is going to sound weird. I think the GM needs to be cheesy. I think the GM needs to be cheesy and approachable. I think the GM needs to have like catchphrases and like uh, things that make people feel like inside jokes with people and and things that make people feel they're being listened to, right? Because I think that the GM is the figurehead for the whole organization that gives the that tells everybody how we're going to act. And if he's sort of um, if he's warm with everybody and he creates a sense of 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 belonging and you being and you're being listened to, then um, then your R and D team can talk to the scouts, and it won't be like we say this guy. You got to draft this guy in the first round, and the, and the scouts are like, "Who the f are you? I've been in baseball for thirty years, and like, you know, get out of here." Like that, there is some of that still in baseball. Mm. There is some of that still in baseball where things are being ignored from the analytics department, or or this, or or, or coaches are pushing back and being like, "We're not going to wear that technology." What are you talking about? Uh, so uh, I think a good GM somehow, like it might sound cheesy and some people will like, will be like, oh man, I hate when he says that. Or like he makes those t-shirts, you know, they, you know, like teams always have these t-shirts, right? But I think they work, man. I think that they give you a sense of like, we're all pulling together. We're all on this, in this together. And if there's like, that's one thing that I really reacted to in that piece was like people saying that like, they didn't feel like he was listening to them anymore that's that's you're done you need to that's what the gm needs to do he said he not only does he need to listen to everybody who's giving him advice because he's gonna have agms and he's gonna have you know uh scouts he's gonna have the r&d department all this stuff he needs to listen to them but on top of that he needs to make them feel like they're being listened to you yeah. know what i mean like you can't you can't just listen to them and then make your own decisions and then they're like did he hear what we said and he just doesn't care you need to be able to explain to them, look, I, you guys made really good points about this or that, uh, but the scouts said this and, you know, I, I've tried to put it all together and that's the decision I made. You know, I was listening to you. I, I took your input. We, we, we reduced the offer a little bit because you said this or, you know what I mean? Like we took your stuff into account. We care about you. You, you're doing something here. Nobody want that. That's why the whole R and D department quit. You can put it together. Oh, we're not being listened to. Oh, we're getting paid terribly. Oh, right. this team is going south and it's playing terribly out there. Okay, we're all going to quit. 
the whole R&D department quit. I wonder, I don't know if this applies to British specifically, but I, I think about it as a quality of many failed leaders. I think there are people who, if they're not the smartest person in the room, they are bad leaders. It, it, it They're threatened, right? They're threatened by the possibility of being intellectually inferior to the people that are reporting to them. And that is a huge problem in a game that seemingly gets smarter every day with the types of people that get hired and the types of information that we're looking at. So if you have a GM who is willing to learn constantly and willing to listen, that's going to go a much longer way, I think, especially in a place like Colorado, but really anywhere. It's going to go a much longer way toward actually having success than the GM who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room all the time and always follows what he wants to do regardless of what his or her very bright team of analysts and scouts is telling him or her to do. Yeah. Hire me for to be GM because I will know immediately when I get there, everyone else there is smarter than me. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like the, the skills of a great leader do not include smartest person in the room yeah. more often than not. Like the best leaders you've worked with, think about the people on the team. Were they the smartest person on the team? Probably not. Not in all cases anyway. Some of the best people I worked for, they had a lot of smart people working for them, helping to cover their own blind spots. That's how you want to build an organization. So I'm really curious to see how this plays out, if they are going to start paying people better, if they're going to be able to build an R&D department again after the last one all basically just walked away because it's going to take some time, but it could actually work in Colorado if Again, this is a big if, if it is done right. Um, Trevor Story, got to trade him. Got to get something good, though. You got to do the right things first. So there's already some stuff that has to be done that will shape even some small parts of the timetable for making all of this happen. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, you know, we got a great question come in from Taylor, and Taylor wanted to know basically what pitchers out there right now are showing good stuff in command, but currently are without a rotation spot. Taylor plays in a lot of deep dynasty leagues and often gets the best fab guys by digging through low leverage relievers with interesting underlying numbers. So past examples would have been Alec Mills in 2019, John Gant has occasionally been useful in leagues like that. So he's looking for you know, sleeper, seventh or eighth starter, swingmen types that could actually step up and take on a more prominent role here in 2021 at some point. The, I, 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 I kind of had two, two classes, uh, two groups when I, when I thought about it. One is like 
uh, guys who are kind of being used as starters but aren't currently in, this, in the rotation or being piggybacked or kind of in between-ish. So Michael Fulmer uh, has a 106 stuff and 105 command. Uh, this is you're in the last moment to get him if he turns because he's kind of he's in between being a rotation guy and not. He's got like three innings in his last start and they're kind of piggybacking with Tariq Skubal. But Skubal's stuff and command numbers are inferior to Fulmer's. And they may want to showcase Fulmer to, to trade him, you know, because he's more on the way out than uh, going to be a part of the next great Tigers team. So um, I think Fulmer will take that rotation spot and might actually be good. His velocity is way up. Uh, the bite looks good. Um, like this is the best he's looked in a long time. So uh, Fulmer counts. Andrew Kittredge on the Rays. Um, has a 121 stuff and a 106 command number. Um, he's being used as a, as a reliever, but, um, I think he has the, uh, the, the, he's also on the raise. <laughs> so I feel like there's any, uh, any type of possibility he ended up being a bolt guy, an opener, anything. Uh, I just think he's a, a, a pretty good pitcher. And then Tanner Houck uh, has a 121 stuff, 92 command plus. It's not a great command plus, but it's above that 90. I call that sort of the reliever shelf is 90. Um, it's it's also, he's kind of a two-pitch guy with a really low arm slot. Uh, but at the same time, with that kind of a stuff number and some of the results he's had in short samples, I'm really excited to see Tanner Houck uh, back in the rotation at some point with the Red Sox. Um, but... More in the spirit, I think, of the question he asked were kind of the current relievers that could maybe uh, make the jump. Um, and that's a, a separate group. I've got a separate group of four here. The JP Fireisen on the Brewers has three pitches, uh, 133 stuff plus. I mean, uh, when you start looking at stuff plus, you start uh, kind of getting this like, oh, my gosh, the Brewers do uh, really care about certain types of movement profiles um, or really good at developing pitching i think um he has a 99 command plus that's off that's un, totally enough to be a starter um and even if that 133 stuff comes down because it would come down if he became a starter right like you would just expect less velocity velocities and input so on and so forth but he could use some degrading there and still be good sean poppin has a 113 stuff plus 107 command plus um taylor clark on in arizona has a 104 stuff plus 104 command plus i think that's a little bit borderline stuff because then if he's in if he's starting and that's 99 stuff 104 command plus that could just be a very league averagey type pitcher but in this guy's uh league it sounds like a league average pitcher would be a win um and uh then there's ryan bow rookie who we just keep waiting on i mean uh i think maybe a little bit like Merriweather, at some point, the injuries will mean he just has to be a reliever. Uh, but if he could stay healthy, 105 stuff plus, 104 command plus uh, from the left side. Interesting guy there in Toronto. Uh, Clark is in Arizona. Poppin, I think, is a pirate. I believe that's right. And the thing about Fire Eisen that's interesting is that he's been in three different organizations now. He's got three pitches that he's throwing as a short reliever. And if he's got command, I wonder what it is about him that has kept teams from even trying him as a starter at some point. He's never even attempted to be a starter, which is pretty strange. Yeah, I wouldn't I'd be surprised if there's a lot of injuries in his history. It's kind of like, like I said, with Bo Rookie and Merriweather, if you just can't stay healthy, sometimes uh, it can be easier to stay healthy in uh, short stint type situations. 
yeah, definitely could be some of that. Uh, there's a common problem that uh, Roger wrote to us about, and I want to talk about this because I think it's it's getting to that point in the season, we're almost a month in, where if you have a lot of injuries on one team, especially if it's a longer-term league, but really in any league, you have this temptation to start making moves, starting to be aggressive right now. And it's you know, only April 26th, so as frustrating as a bad month can be, trying to find some balance. like Making the right moves is really important. Uh, the example that Roger sent us, he's in a 13-team mixed league with two IL spots, drafted Betts, Rendon, Starling Marte, Cattell Marte, also has Fromber, Lourdes Gurriel, Erod, and Lance McCullers. I mean, that's a group that has been just crushed by injuries, even bats. We talked about him, I think, last week. He just hasn't looked like himself early on because of some uh, some bumps and bruises, to put it mildly. So the question that Roger had that I think a lot of people out there have is if you're in a situation like this, you know, you're buried near the bottom of the league and clearly you're missing out on some some production from a lot of key players. Do you remain patient with that core, especially if a lot of those players are coming back soon? Do you try to sell low on some injured players just to get somebody in there who's actually healthy and offering you something? Or do you start to throw in the towel in April if it's a keeper league and just start to make some moves for the future? I've I've seen some uh, large increases in um, standings points. Like I was last in Auto New uh, Experts League uh, for the first week or two, and now I'm fifth. And it's like, that's pretty, that was pretty fast, you know? <laughs> um, and it took some of my guys just coming back from being injured um, and getting back in there. So I do think that large movements in the standings are still possible. I don't think I'd kick, uh, I'd, I'd get rid of, uh, I don't think I'd give up on the season in the Keeper League yet. I think I'd give myself till May at least. I mean, it's a six-month season. We haven't even finished one. I think I would want to go to mid-May at least, uh, kind of let a third of the season, get close to a third of the season before I gave up. Uh, you can't – I mean, you're kind of stuck too because you, nobody – it's a little bit like trying to, uh, to trade a big contract in baseball. No one's really buying injured players. So it, it's not really an option there. The only thing I figured out is just to keep pushing them down on your bench – into to your bench is totally full and uh and then just try to make the most reasonable bids on interesting uh position uh, interesting fill-ins that have a little bit of upside so um you know i just finished my fab runs this week and i got players like jordan luplo and uh who's another one Adelis Garcia is the kind of guy that's just playing a lot right now. He's not going to be on your roster all season necessarily in a 13-team mixed league, but you want someone who can do some damage with power and hits in the heart of the order, at least temporarily. Players like that can kind of bridge the gap until you start to get healthy again, even though their projections compared to the guys you lost are so divergent. Tommy Lastella. And one of the things that I... The, the only thing that I would add as like a little piece of advice is just that... Um, I just tried to make uh, all my bids for injury replacements just reasonable, small, you know, because what's the difference to me between Tommy LaStella and Anderton Simmons, Willie Adames, you know, in some of these leagues where I just want one of them to step in for a couple of weeks until I right now I have in one league, I think I have Segura and Marte both hurt. And another one I have Segura and uh, and Atuve hurt. You know, it's like you just 
you just need someone to play. So don't pay like $150 out of your thousand for an injury replacement. Try to pay like $30 or $40, right? And that way, hopefully, the idea is you get your guys back, you'll sort through the injury replacements and start dropping them, and you'll still have a good amount of money for like maybe a big prospect that comes up or someone else's big injured dropper at the wrong time. Maybe they get so overfilled that they need to drop a a pretty good player that you can stash. So um, I, I think that finding a way to get those injured players on the cheap is a good way to do it. I I did a lot of bids where I had six, seven players. You know, you have a conditional bid where it's like, I'm dropping Adam Hazley in this one league, and I have six or seven players that are all injury replacements under him, and they just went from like 70 to three in terms of how much money I was going to put down. But all of them, I felt I'd rather be low on the top guys. Because I feel like I'll get the $3 guy. And the worst case scenario is I've got this $3 guy in there. I've got Josh Van Meter in there for a week. Because Altuve is close. You know what I mean? So that's mm-hmm. what I was trying to do. Is just try not to spend too much on the injury replacement. So that you, if you're talking about Fab, you still have that later. Yeah, and I think this also kind of turns into a different question with the keeper and dynasty approach. Because we're at the point now... If you play in a league with Ian Khan, you're getting offers from Ian because he knows that if you're off to a bad start in a keeper or dynasty league, you start to have those doubts right now. And as soon as you get an offer of at least one good long-term piece and possibly two for a bunch of guys that you might not keep, it's tempting to take it. And right now, we're at the point where there are more teams that believe they can win any league this season than there will be a month from now. But I think given that we didn't have a minor league season in 2020 especially, if you're trading for minor leaguers right now, you're basing it off of information from more than a year ago. I feel like just because of what happened last year, especially it's actually too early to start moving pieces away and keep her in dynasty. Missing a huge piece of information. You don't even know what levels they're going to be put them at yet. Right. And even on your own roster, you, you might see after a month in the minors that some guys that you thought were going to be close to helping you a year from now, that they might not be as close as you thought, or they might be closer than you thought. So Mm -hmm. I think you just want to get a little more information about the pool of minor league players in general before you start dealing players away. Yeah, sure. A couple teams are going to probably decide this isn't my year between now and the end of next month in a keeper in dynasty league. If it's a 12 or a 15 team or even deeper sort of league, a few more teams will probably rule themselves out, but you're still going to have, a decent number of viable teams out there trying to play for this year to trade with. I don't think it's going to hurt your return that much to get some extra information. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it hurts buyers and sellers that there's no minor leagues right now because um, I'm I'm in seventh in Devil's Rejects out of 20, uh, but we have a good team we're sending. We, we've had a lot of injuries. So as these guys come back, we're, we're starting to go up the rankings. And so we're looking to buy, but a lot of our, uh, as, a, as a contender and without having these high picks, what we ended up doing is buying a lot of sort of J2 signees, high, uh, like high A wunderkinds, you know, that could, if, if they were, if they landed in double A and started doing the same thing they were doing in high A, would immediately become huge names and would like rocket up the, the top 100. So a guy like, uh, Manuel Beltre, uh, who is a shortstop, I think in the Royals organization, um, 
but uh, we have a, like a bunch of these. We I have a, we have another one from Toronto. Uh, just a tools tools the guys that we like the tools. We, they were doing well in high A, but we just don't even know where they are. If they could land in double A, I could get a lot more for them. So I was trying to get some pitching early on because um, you know I traded away Means and Haney uh, for Mitch Haniger before the season with Tom Trudeau, um, and that blew a bit of a hole in our rotation. Like uh, my my bet, my backup. We got Logan Webb in that deal. My he's he was like if one of my starting pitchers had been injured, well, I would have had to choose between like throwing a fourth reliever or throwing Logan Webb at San Diego next week. And I was kind of like, uh, I'd rather have a little more cushion. So I've been trying to get pitching, trying to get pitching, and everyone's kind of like looking at our prospects and being like, um, you know. I don't know. Are those guys any good? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. We think so, but we're not sure either. So what I ended up doing was uh, trading for a guy that Command Stuff loves, uh, Tyler Anderson on the um, on the Pirates. Uh, really great Command Stuff numbers. And uh, we traded away Chris Rodriguez, who's in the major league. So at least you can see, at the very least, he has Velo. He's getting major leaguers out as a reliever. He could end up going the reliever route and ended up being a closer even on his own team. It's possible by the end of the season. Or uh, he goes back to starting. Even his own manager doesn't know because Madden has said both. I think he looks like a future reliever, which is amazing for a manager to say about a pitcher. Why would you do that? And then he just recently said, he, I think he looks like a front-end starter. So make up your mind, Madden. Um, and then we, we attach Corbin Martin to it just because there's a little bit of a track record with Corbin Martin. Um, you know, there's like some knowledge of his, of his abilities and, uh, he does not have a great command number. So I thought, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Corbin Martin is good. Maybe Corbin Martin is good this year. Maybe he's better than Tyler Anderson this year, but I'd feel a lot better about having Tyler Anderson in the fold. And he's back starting for us this week because he's got Kansas city at home. So anyway, that was a long winded one. I know nobody cares about your league, but it did bring in a lot of these topics that, that this person's asking about. Yeah, so I, I would just say, even if you know this probably isn't your year, I don't think it's a bad idea to be a little more patient just to get some more information. Wait till we get at least a couple of weeks from the minor leagues just to see where players were assigned, how they look early on. Teams might be aggressively promoting prospects who hit the ground running this year because they may realize, oh, crap, this guy did actually progress to the point where, yeah, he was a high-A player last time we saw him, but he's a triple-A player now, so starting him at double-A was too low. But they're going to need to kind of feel it out and, and prove it. And they also have they also have more information than we do. Um, you mentioned the San Francisco Giants prospects. I think there's a Mariners prospects account. Uh, you can get little snippets where you're like, ooh, like uh, I think Elliot Ramos hit 107 mile an hour uh, a home run the other day. Um, I saw somebody hit 112. Who was it? Mm, mm. I don't remember. But uh, oh, Luciano, Marco Luciano hit 112 mile an hour homer, which is actually uh, in terms of like one having one data point on a player. Kind of exciting. <laughs> that's a that's a good one to know that he can already hit 112 at his age uh, and his point of development. So there's that's all you can do is you get these little sort of. But they they know more because they're they're playing against each other. So you I think we'll we'll learn a lot when we start seeing assignments for players. Yeah, I want to know where Jason Dominguez is going to start his professional career this year. Could be low A, could be high A, mm-hmm. could be double A. Probably not. Probably one of the A ball levels, but. 
I'm just really curious. I want to know see. where all my high A guys go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really curious to see what these assignments actually look like uh, once the season gets underway. May 4th, opening day for the minor leagues. Definitely excited for that. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Breaking news. Oh no, breaking news. Breaking news. The sixth person on the Kansas City Royals today, the sixth person to record a save, and my personal favorite, Josh Stomont. Come on down. Thank you, Royals. We love you so much. It is so much fun to own six players to try and get a, uh, try and get saves. I think I, I was in a, in a draft and hold with a listener, actually, um, who was laughing about your Scott, Scott Barlow pick. And he, he was trying to, he was trying to, uh, gather all of the Royals, uh, closers to say so you'd have at least the Royals closer on his, it was a draft and hole, so he's like, he picked all of them. He picked all of them, but Scott Barlow. I think Scott Barlow has a save. I think he everyone does. has a save. I think uh, Wade Davis has a save. Greg Holland has a save. Scott Barlow has a save. Josh Stolmont has a save. And, and I think there's two more. It's like Oprah is running the bullpen. <laughs> you get a save, and you get a save. You get a save. You get a save. <laughs> I still bet on Stonemont long term, but yeah, I feel like I threw away my grounds for complaint about this because I'm sure there are hours and hours of podcast episodes in years past of me saying that bullpen should be managed that way. So we, we deserve this, you know. Mm. This this was a long time coming, and should should they really turn to one guy consistently beyond uh, our purposes? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that Rob Arthur uh, piece that, that the hot hand does kind of exist when it comes to pitching, which means, uh, which he said that small changes in fastball velocity are very predictive. So if you're monitoring your guys in the bullpen, there'll be minor fluctuations in velocity over time, and you may want to act quick on that and just be like, basically, in in the in sort of old school parlance, you know, Stomont's throwing it better right now. I mean, Stomont to me. Going back to the first time we ever talked about him and the first time anybody ever wrote about him, I think, was my friend Bernie Pleskoff. Saw him in the Fall League. Jesus, must have been at least three years ago and possibly as many as five. And it was effusive praise about his stuff and some serious questions about his command. Like That was that was the scouting report then, and I don't know if much has changed Mm -hmm. over the years with him, but if you want to give it to the guy with the best stuff, yeah, Stalmont's the guy. You want to give it to the guy who's most likely to not tip the vending machine over? <laughs> it's probably not him. 
Let me see if I have a command plus number on here. I bet it's going to be somewhat disappointing. It might not be horrible. I mean, it's not it's not Kikuchi esque or Otani esque. Is a it's an eighty six, but that's uh, that's why I talk about the ninety as the as the reliever shelf. Yeah, so kind of typical for a reliever. So maybe not as bad as it used to be. If we had that number three, four, five years ago, it might have been like a sixty or something, just completely outlandish. And and also he was trying to be a starter back then, right? So he was probably throwing two other pitches that he couldn't command. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> At this point, he simplified and said he's throwing his two best pitches. <laughs> a lot of great questions came in, so we're going to go ahead and, and bring up these players in order. Uh, Sixto Sanchez was one of the guys that landed in the mailbag. The question was from Steve. Steve wrote, I've always been a little miffed by the Sixto fascination. I get the velo being amazing, and he sure does seem to limit hard contact, but how does he not miss bats at a higher clip? Elite velo, elite chase rates. Never had a K percentage that would make you think he has the stuff that he does in the minors or in the majors. What is going on here? And do I just need to get on board because he's going to be a stud? I lean towards, I lean, I lean stud. Um, one of the things that's interesting about him is that um, there was a good deal of injury in his history. Um, and so I don't think he always had these velos in the minor leagues. So when you're looking back at the strikeout rates, uh, those are, there's are some times in there when he was sitting 92 and 91 and 93. So like, you know, this, uh, this kind of like flamethrowing beast, this 96, 97, 98, like, I mean, he's throwing hundreds in games. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily what you're looking at when you look at the historical strikeout rate uh, numbers. It's also fair to say that his his fast or just his pitches in general uh, are stand out more when it comes to horizontal movement than vertical movement. And vertical movement is better for whiffs and horizontal movement is slightly better for ground balls and um, sweet contact. But it's not fair to say that He's Dustin May before the changes this year because he does have really good vertical movement on the slider, the changeup, and the sinker. Um, but uh, probably fair to say that he's sinker first. Sinker's better than his four seam, and so there will be some there will be some uh, some ground balls that he gives up. There'll be there'll be some uh, strikeouts he misses out on. Uh, I think he's still going to be elite. I, I still see the package as being elite. I mean, look at what Dustin May did. Dustin May made a very small tweak to his fastball, so his four seam gets a little bit more ride, and he's going to the four seam more. And now he looks like the Dustin May we all thought he was going to be. Yeah, the curveball is looking really good early this season for Dustin May as well. When you say elite for Sixto, do you mean perennial top twenty, top twenty-five starter? Like, what what does that kind of mean value-wise? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, elite to me is top fifteen, and uh, I think I think he has that ability. I mean, I think that's still in him. Uh, it might be uh, a little bit more like when Luis Castillo was going well, which I know that's a kind of a bad name to bring up right now, but it might be a little bit more uh, on that end. Um, but like when I look at his projections, I see like a homer per nine. I say no. Uh, he's never given up anywhere close to that. And, uh, with that sinker and those command rates, I just don't see him giving up a homer tonight. So 
you take that, uh, you take some number off of there. Uh, I think he's got a little bit more strikeout upside than eight per nine. So I'd give him a little more, a bit of a strikeout boost there. Um, now we're talking about a three, five ERA with a one, two whip. I mean, it's pretty close to top 15. Yeah, that's definitely right in that conversation. So yeah, 20 to 25 short term with upside ceiling to get higher. I think that's a fair description of of Sanchez at this point. I saw a lot of people drop him this weekend, uh, and I know they they probably had some tough decisions to make because of injuries, just like we're saying. But I'm you know wherever I have him, I'm trying to hold on to him as long as possible. Yeah, injuries pushed me to let him go in TGFBI, but you I- had to let him go. I had to in TGFBI because there's no IL spots and I've got a couple other injuries. And the way I looked at it was, let's say he's a month away from pitching in a game, which doesn't seem to be outlandish based on what he's just coming back from. Just started throwing. They're going to have minor league games. They're going to probably have to stretch him out kind of carefully. If he's a month away right now, I can't play short for four weeks. If I have to throw 10 to 15% of my fab at him later to get him back, I can live with that. That's actually easier for me to justify than having one fewer option available with other more valuable players currently up on the bench with injuries. Um, Let's talk about Kenta Maeda for a moment. Is there anything going on with him? The question here was uh, about spin rate. Has anything changed with his spin rate on his slider that might be causing him to get hit early on here in 2021? Yeah, I didn't see anything. I looked looked for the spin rate on the slider. I also looked at, uh, I think I shared in my rankings a... uh, uh, pitch to uh, start to start uh, stuff ranking for Maeda um, and uh, didn't see uh, anything there either. So um, let's see here. It's not always easy uh, to get spin rate changes on the player page, but I didn't see it. On, I didn't see it there. And I also don't see that much of a difference uh, in uh, his movement. Uh, in fact, he, he last year in his great season did not have good movement on the slider. And in fact, uh, by StatCast, he has better movement on the slider this year. Uh, the changeup drops more than it did last year. The sinker drops more than it did last year. Um, and the four seamer is about the same. So I don't see any corresponding movement changes to last year that would make me worried. The stuff number has been pretty steady at 110. Um, and so I'm, uh, I don't uh, see a real reason to, to worry about him. The only thing that's there is that the, uh, sinker last year was no, you know, sinker last year was 91. It's 91 this year. So I don't know. He hasn't really even lost any velocity. Probably someone you can safely trade for. If you get someone in your league, who's panicking a bit after the sluggish start for Maeda, uh, thanks a lot for those questions, Steve. Next question here was about Kyle Tucker. Is it time to worry about Kyle Tucker after the start that he's off to? And it could be worse. He's got five homers on the young season, hitting 181, 205, 398, entering play on Monday. Uh, has a stolen base, 13 RBIs, 10 runs. The counting stats haven't been terrible to this point. I was looking at the underlying numbers. I didn't see anything as far as an outlandish reach rate or anything that just shot up to the point where I'm changing my expectations all that much for Tucker at this point. No, uh, you know, barrel rates are up and his barrel rate is up. Uh, I would say since barrel rates are up, his barrel rate is steady. But it's a pretty good barrel rate. So, you know, that's something I would be looking at right now um, in terms of uh, of things that become useful quickly. Uh, His chase rate uh, is a little bit up. 
um, and his walk rate is down. So you could say that maybe this won't be his best season for OBP or whatever. Uh, but his expected slugging is 553 versus an actual slugging of 398. Even if expected slugging is a little bit broken, uh, I think that does paint a picture that I believe, which is he's still hitting the ball really hard. He's maybe going through uh, some issues at the plate in terms of chasing stuff. But I, I think he has enough of a track record this far into his career that I think he'll make the adjustment. Yeah, still talking about a guy that has less than a full big league season's worth of plate appearances, 461 career plate appearances so far for Tucker, 18 homers, 15 steals in that. So really just looks like a 2020 guy that might be a shorter term liability with the average and the OBP. Even when things were going well for him in the shortened season, it was a 268 average and a 325 OBP. That's not great. That's just sort of good for most leagues. But um, I'm, I'm not panicking with Kyle Tucker at this point. I'd kind of put him in that Maeda bin where if someone in my league is shopping him, I'm on the receiving end of that call, willing to make a deal to get him. Uh, I got a question here about Eugenio Suarez. He's been atrocious this year. My fantasy league is points-based, and I drafted him for shortstop eligibility. However, we lose a point for strikeouts, and we lose a point for fielding errors. Oh, no, which has made Suarez a liability most days during this slump and position change. How much longer should I give him before trying to trade for another bat. I mean, I don't worry about Suarez as a hitter generally. You know, I, I don't know if there's anything in his underlying numbers that would cause early panic, but that format is definitely not the optimal format <laughs> yeah, for Suarez yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're really uh, exacerbating the the flaws in his game. Um, you know, he is not reaching more. Uh, he's not swinging more. He's being super patient. Uh, he's lost a lot of his ability to make contact on pitches outside the zone, which is something that can age poorly, but usually doesn't drop off 20% in one season. Um, so I think, uh, generally I'd be excited about owning him still, but that league, man, he may strike out 30% of the time. I would, uh, I'd have to look at, want to run the auction calculator i think the auction calculator and fangraphs does have a rest of season component and i'd want to throw in errors and strikeout rate rest of the season and see what the the value is if the value uh, that the auction calculator gives you is on the value on the number of like two three four dollars then i think he's actually droppable because you can find a player that might pop and be better than that um and two or three dollars doesn't seem like it's that hard to find uh, but if the auction calculator still says he's like a $15, $20 player, rest of us even, even with those flaws, then I'm going to hold. Yeah, I would say while if you play rotisserie leagues, the idea of dropping Suarez seems pretty far-fetched. In a points league, it is actually a lot more realistic, especially given Nathan's points league in this case. Uh, let's get to this question here. Are you still buying in on Austin Riley if you pop the hood uh, what do the deeper metrics say about his start so far? And I think he started to warm up a bit over the weekend in the time since this question was sent in. But I liked Riley coming into the season, you know, because I didn't think he had a lot of competition for the job. And he showed improved plate discipline during the shortened season, bumped up the walk rate, cut the K rate. Early on, he's held that improved strikeout rate. And he's walking even more than he did previously. He's up to a 12.5% walk rate here. A couple of home runs through 21 games, like a lot of hitters in this Atlanta offense, just hasn't found his footing yet. Yeah, I mean, he's made a, a really huge change to his plate discipline. He came into the 
league swinging 56% of the time, and now he swings 44% of the time. Um, and that's an adjustment in both years, pretty major adjustment in both years. He came into this league reaching 41% of the time and is now reaching 27% of the time. So he's made uh, real changes and from year over year from last year too, positive changes to his plate discipline. You're seeing that in the walk rate. The strikeout rate are way better than they were in his rookie season. Um, I, you know, I think it's all there. I think it's all coming together. The barrel rate is not there. Uh, 42 batted ball events is not, uh, is not an epitaph. You know, we can't write that barrel rate in stone yet. So maybe there is something where he's, uh, focused on the strikeout rate and, um, and it's been to the detriment of his power a little bit, but he has so much power that I would rather have the strikeout rate gains, I think. Because then I think he can maybe hit 260 with like 25 homers as opposed to his projections, which sort of suggest he'll hit like 230 with 30 home run type power. Yeah, those extra home runs are pretty costly when they drag down your average in OPP that much because then you run the risk of losing playing time. You have to be a still good real-life player to keep playing time on a contending team like that. So that trade-off seems like it's worth it for Riley. I do look at him as an early season by low and... Just as we said about the Yankees, I think on the Friday show, the Braves are going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Like The floodgates are going to open and hope that if you root for another team in the NL that you're not playing the Braves when that happens. Uh, I had a question come in about Marcus Simeon, who's 5 for 5 as a base dealer early on this season. And the question was, if you have good middle infield depth, is Simeon someone you try to move away from right now? In this case, Jazz Chisholm is the other player that uh, Adrian could use if he trades Simeon away. I'm on board with it because I trust Jazz. I know there's going to be some ups and downs, and it's been more good than bad so far from him. But I think with Simeon, I'm still stuck on this idea that 2019 is by far the best season we're ever going to get from him. And the K rate we're seeing early is more in line with what we saw in the shortened season. Yeah, he still walks. Yeah, he still plays a lot. He's got power, obviously. I think you'd do pretty well in a trade for Simeon right now, given that you know, he is offering speed to go with that pop. The only uh, rebuttal I can offer you, sir, <laughs> is that on the trade market, I feel Jazz would get more. Yeah. And if you look at their rest of season projections, even with, uh, let's say you don't, let's say you think that he's going to strike out more than 20% of the time. And so you don't believe the projections that say he's going to strike out 18% of the time and hit 260. Let's make it 22% strikeout rate and hits 245, right? Uh, we believe the power for the most part. We believe the speed for the most part. So what your rest of season projection probably for Semyon, even with the added strikeouts, I think would be kind of, let's say, 240 with 25 homers and 10 to 15 steals. My rest of season projection for uh, Jazz, and this is better than what the numbers on Fangraph said. I, I'm buying in. And, th and so therefore I think he can hit 240 with, you know, a decent on base percentage, 25 homers and maybe 20 to 25 steals. So I think the difference between these two guys might be about 10 steals going forward. And depending on what you can get for that, if you can, if you can get more for jazz, then I think that they might be a surprisingly similar value going forward. So they might, I might uh, put both on the block. Uh, and see what's going on. 
and obviously I'm talking about redraft. Yeah, because in a keeper league, then you hold Jazz and you you shop Simeon in a second. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that email was uh, signed, stuck up the middle with you, which is uh, it's good. That's like a Bob's Burger uh, name, really. <laughs> yeah. I had another question come in here, and it was a suggestion also from Nathan, who said, "For would you rather, it should be named after a couple of bar- ballpark staples." I'm guessing that when watching a game for fun, most of us would rather have a beer than a hot dog. I think that gets tricky because I think there's a lot of us who would just say, I would like both a beer and a hot dog. I know there's people who don't even drink beers. (laughs) Right. So that one gets a little slippery there. But Nathan is from Australia, listens to the show in the morning, watches baseball in the morning when drinking beer is frowned upon. Uh, Understandably so. (laughs) Yeah, he wishes. Yeah, I can see why that would be a thing uh, that he would think about. (laughs) I remember seeing uh, baseball games. Uh, at like three in the morning in, in London and just being like, I'm alone in the living room with all the lights off watching baseball by myself at three in the morning. That'd be different. I, I don't know if I could really ever get used to that as a permanent thing. I could do it for a, a short time. But that's Chris Liss about his viewing habits out there in, in Portugal. I find that when you ask Chris Liss a question, you rarely get a simple answer. No, so. <laughs> So I better block off some time for this uh, for this question. But the question from Nathan was: His first base options are Alec Bohm, Joey Votto, and CJ Crone. Out of that group, do you have Bohm clearly ahead of Votto and Crone at this point, or do you think that's actually a little closer than we might have thought coming into the season? Um, you know, there's some, there's people out there that were higher on Bohm than I was, and the reason for me um, was that I just saw him as kind of steady Eddie. Um, and I wasn't sure that there was a whole nother level to him. Um, and his current start, how does it make me feel about that prediction? I guess, I guess I feel good about that prediction. I mean, he went from a 10% barrel rate to a 7% barrel rate. If he's going to do like seven to 10% barrel rate, he's not going to be like a 35 homer hitter, you know? And I thought he could hit 280, but he's striking out 27% of the time. If he's going to strike out more than 20% of the time, he's probably not going to hit 280. So uh, you're still looking at a guy 270 with like 20, 25 homer power is the most likely outcome for Bohm. Um, I think that kind of just makes him one of the pack if you're talking redraft. Which I think gives you an opportunity to possibly swing a deal. Like if you can trade Bohm and pick up Votto or pick up Crone. I mean, I think Crone over Votto is probably the way I'd go just because of the Colorado factor. Yeah. Have you seen the Bat X projection for Crone, by the way? 278, 347, 551. Easily the most optimistic projection for him, even just the regular Bat, 271, 338, 518. That gives him the best numbers, I believe, of the entire trio. So I do think you can get away with it, you know, turn Bohm into something else, maybe a pitching upgrade or some speed or some saves, something else, because there is a, a decent number of people out there that believe in Alec Bowman for good reason, but that gap's not wide enough to say, yeah, I'm going to pass on these quality alternatives and hold on to Bohm all season. I think third place on this group is Votto. Um, as much as I'm excited about the new uh, StatCast Votto, <laughs> the new uh, chasing barrel rate, chasing barrels Votto, um, I, uh, don't think that it's going to lead to a great batting average. So I think Vaughn will have the worst batting average and about the same power as the other three. Crone should have the best batting average 
maybe similar to Bohm, and Crone should have the most power, and Bohm should have the second most power. Yeah, I would agree with that breakdown at this point. Thanks a lot for the question, Nathan. Glad you're enjoying the show on your way to work uh, as a morning show in Australia. Love that we've got that that global uh, presence now. It's awesome to have people all over the world checking out our show. Uh, some loose ends to tie up here. We had a few suggestions for our acapella group name. One from Noel came in via email. Rates and Baritones could be the name of the Rates and Barrels uh, acapella group. I think that could that could work, right? Uh, I had an email from Matthew, who is just like me, apparently. I think this is a common one, though. So this is this is not just a Derek problem. He only hears and sees the name Brock Holt as Brock Holt. You know, like Steve Holt from Arrested <laughs> Development. I'm just glad I'm not alone, right? Like I, I've seen that one on Twitter before, though. So that's how I know I'm not completely strange. I'm just a little bit strange to have other players like that. I spent all of Sunday singing just the words Eduardo Rodriguez to the tune of Old Clementine. <laughs> I can't top that. Why did I do that? I really don't know. Uh, there was one other email that came in. This one came in from Ken. Ken wrote in to tell us that he thinks the Fast and Furious 10 premise that you dreamt about would actually get him on board with the franchise <laughs> that you should push through. Um, he said it's a way to promote the strength and power of women. So I think you should you should pitch this to Hollywood. I, I, I don't think it... Of all the movies you could pitch, I think that one's got a better chance to get a green light than just about anything else out there because the franchise has been so successful. Oh my gosh, that's my next move. Fast Furious <laughs> 20. <laughs> well, as always, feel free to shoot us an email, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. You can get a subscription to The Athletic at just $3.99 a month to start at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels on Twitter. He is at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>